Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. Um, I wasn't here last week, but I know that Pastor Ben spoke on unity. And I wish I were here because one of the themes that God has put into my heart is the importance of unity. And I remember probably around 15 years ago, someone told me that we seek unity for the sake of Christ, and that was paradigm shifting for my life. Uh, We seek unity not because we necessarily um, agree with one another or want to be with one another, uh, but we seek unity for the sake of Christ, because Christ has put us into one body through his work and through his spirit. And when we come together, there is great blessing, just as Psalm 133 says that God commands a blessing there. And I truly do believe in my heart that when the body of Christ comes together and puts aside petty things uh, to serve Christ for the sake of Christ, there we will find so much life. There we will find so much of God's power. And I do believe that what we are doing here is a step in that direction. And for that reason, I know that the Lord is not only pleased, uh, but it's only a matter of time where we experience the, the power of God. And uh, it will happen, because there God commands um, his blessing. And the other thing that I will share is as we were singing that song, Spirit Break Out, um, I couldn't help but take my mind to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, where David fights the Philistines. And David inquires of the Lord, shall I go up and fight? And one of the great habits that David has, and I hope that we can learn from him, is always to inquire of the Lord before taking any major decision. And God says, yes, go up, uh, a frontal assault, fight the Philistines. And so he does, and he wins. And it says the Spirit of God, or God himself, broke out and defeated the Philistines. As we worship the Lord... Uh, as we proclaim who he is, as we hold on to his grace and walk in faith, we can be assured that God's spirit will break out, break out on the Lower East Side, break out in the East Village, break out in Manhattan, dismantle strongholds, and do amazing things. So I want to encourage you guys to lift up your voices, uh, to sing, and to praise, because there is creative power Uh, when we do so, because the one of whom we sing is no one less than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do today is talk about new wines and new wineskins, and uh, I think this is a very important um, uh, topic um, for the church at large, and there is insight there, and there is power there, so uh, we're going to be looking at that, but before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless us. So let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we come before you, and we ask that you would grant us illumination by the power of your Holy Spirit, and help us to see what you want us to see. Um, I pray that the Spirit of God that searches the depth of God will communicate truth to us, change our paradigms, change our hearts, and I pray, Lord God, that you would give us boldness to follow you, knowing that when we do, Lord God, um, that you honor it, and you use it, and you do amazing things, um, even in a city like New York, and we thank you that you're doing it already. We pray that there would be an acceleration of all goodness and all power, uh, your power, Lord God, in the city, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, in order to understand this passage, we need to see that there is controversy after controversy. All these controversies exist because Jesus is breaking paradigms. He's breaking worldviews. He's doing things that people have not done for a very long time. So when Jesus is 
questioned about fasting, it's only the tip of the iceberg because the whole chapter, Jesus has been shattering paradigms and confounding the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are just kind of scratching their heads. Who is this guy? And what is he doing? Right in the beginning of the chapter, what does Jesus do? He calls uh, fishermen to himself these lowly fishermen, and he says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers and men. So he's not calling the priests, he's not calling the religious dignitary, he's not calling well-born young men and young women, he's not calling the political class, no, he's calling fishermen to himself, and they form his little inner group. He's shattering paradigms there. The next thing that he does is, if you look at this passage, he heals a person with leprosy. And we all know from the Old Testament, or their Hebrew Bible back then, that a person with leprosy was a curse of God. That person was unclean. Not only does Jesus heal this person of leprosy, but Jesus also touches this person, and himself then, he becomes unclean, and yet makes that person clean. And again, he's shattering paradigms and shattering expectations. And then, of course, there's a a paralytic person who can't walk. And Jesus, rather than just healing that person, says something, again, so controversial. What he says, your sins are forgiven. And the people say, how dare this person say that their sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. And this person is healed to vindicate the fact that his sins are actually forgiven in view of the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who hear it are perplexed and they're offended. And the very next thing that happens, there's a tax collector, Levi. No one likes tax collectors in the ancient world. I won't go into all the, the social background, but they are just really hated. The Pharisees hate them. And what does Jesus do? He calls a tax collector to himself, goes to a tax collector's home, and dines with this tax collector and eats with sinners. Again, shattering paradigms. Controversy after controversy after controversies. The followers of Jesus, they're not fasting. Um, they just latch onto this one thing and probe a little bit deeper, and they make their case. Um, the followers of John the Baptist, they fast. Uh, the Pharisees, they fast, if we can um, believe in Matthew chapter 19 or so, right around there, talking about the Pharisees, they fast twice a week. Uh, so this is a fasting culture. Uh, religious people fast. None of the followers of Jesus, his inner followers, they're not fasting. And then Jesus says, well, can you really call somebody who's spending time with the bridegroom uh, to fast? And Jesus's point is, well, he's the person that was long awaited. He is here, and therefore, it's a time of celebration. And in that time of celebration, uh, fasting is incongruous. So rather, they should learn, they should do, they should spend time with, and they should celebrate with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have been doing that. But then he also does say, there will come a time where the bridegroom is not with them, and they will fast. Now, this is not a teaching on fasting, but the only thing that I will say is the scriptures assume that there will be seasons of fasting for the people of God. So there are times where we all need to be fasting from the things of this world, um, and cling on to the Lord 
so that God would give us that desperation for Him so that we can come to the stark realization once again, deep within the recesses of our hearts, that we do not live uh, on bread alone, but the words that proceed from the mouth of God. And God heightens those spiritual appetites and gives us spiritual pangs of hunger for the things of God. We need that. But I'm not teaching on that. I'm just saying we need that. Uh, but Jesus' point here is that this is a time of celebration because he has come into this world, the savior and deliverer of humanity. And so the followers of Jesus at this time do not fast. Now, right at this juncture, Jesus gives a parable. And he basically underlines one point in three different ways. And that one point that he is underlining is something new is here. And because of that, you need to have a heart of newness as well. The parable goes like this. It says, no one takes a new garment, and no one cuts this new garment and puts it on an old garment. Because in the end, you will mess up the new garment because you just cut it, <laughs> and it will be ill-fitting for that old garment. The intention might be good, but the outcome is foolish and completely detrimental. And he says, well, some of you guys are actually like this, if you probe a little bit deeper. You're trying to take that which is new, map it onto that which is old, to put it together, to have one's cake and eat it too, uh, to put it all together, and your heart might be good in trying to do this, but in the end, you vitiate and you destroy both. Now, if you take a step back, look at it from a sociological perspective, it's really called syncretism. You're taking a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you're putting it together and say, it fits my taste, so I'm going to live it, and I'm going to embrace it, and this is going to be the way I live, the way I walk, the way I conduct myself, the way I live my life. And in the end, it's foolish. It never works because that which is new is not compatible with what we hold on to. And there are so many examples of this in Scripture. But the best example that I can think of actually comes from the book of Judges. And when you look at the end of the book of Judges, we come to one of the last uh, judges, and that's Samuel. As soon as the Samuel narrative ends, there is this, this person by the name of Micah. And we might have skipped over Micah, even though we read the book of Judges so many times, because there's so many colorful figures um, in the book of Judges, like Gideon, like Samson, like Deborah. But there's this fellow by the name of Micah. And Micah steals his mother's silver. His mother pronounces a curse. He hears, says, oh my gosh, my mother basically cursed me because I'm the one who stole it. So he gives the money back. The mom gives him the money back again, because it's, his, it's her son, they fashion an idol, and there is this nameless Levite just floating around. So Micah says, why don't you become the Levite of my household, and you can preside over my deities and my idols so that God will bless us. And all the while we are reading this, and we're thinking to ourselves, this guy has a semblance of godliness, Yet at the same time, why is he making idols? 
where does this nameless Levite come from? And why is this name, like, nameless Levite presiding over idols? And why does this person think that God will bless them because they worship idols rather than the living God? And then you go to the next chapter, and there are these Danites. They come, and they see this Levite and says, You know what, Levite? You should actually come with us. Take your idols and come with us, because would you rather be the priest of a house, or would you rather be a priest of a tribe? And this person does a little benefit, cost-benefit analysis, and of course he says, I'd rather go with the tribe, and he goes with the tribe. And we see this syncretism take place, and they're trying to mix the old with the new, and the new with the old, and in the end, it's idolatrous. And so the very next chapter, there's another Levite, um, and this time, this Levite has a concubine, and you're thinking to yourself, why does a Levite have a concubine? Um, and why is there no hospitality whatsoever in this town? And why does no one take them in until late at night someone finally does come? And why is this concubine uh, given to the townspeople? And why is this concubine murdered that night? And why is her body cut up into 12 pieces, sent to the tribes of Israel? And why is there a civil war at the end to the point where there's only 600 people of Benjamin left? And the point is syncretism, old and new. God does not bless the worship of idols. God does not bless false gods. There might have been a sincere heart, but that sincere heart, quote-unquote, is really a wicked heart. It's a self-serving heart. It's a selfish heart. It's a heart filled with self-love. It's a heart that is not courageous. And in the end, as we can see very clearly in the book of Judges, it leads to death. No one takes a new garment, cuts it, and puts it on an old garment. Both are destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. And if we look a little bit deeper at the parable, then he says, well, no one takes new wine and puts it into old wineskin. Now, we need a little bit of historical data here because um, we don't really have, like, wineskins anymore. Um, but if you put um, new wine into new wineskin, it actually works because the new wineskin can expand because the fermentation process of wine makes that wine expand. Now, I'm not a wine drinker, so I don't know this. This is all the commentaries, okay? Uh, so I, I'm not speaking from personal experience, but that seems to be the chemical process that takes place in the fermentation of wine. So you can imagine if you have old wineskin, which has been already expanded to its maxim, maximum capacity, and you put new wine there, and as it begins to ferment, what's going to happen? It's going to explode the old wineskins. And then you're going to ruin not only the wineskin, which you might love, but you're going to ruin the wine as well. And so Jesus' point is, you can't contain that which is new in your traditions. You just can't do it. You might again, quote unquote, have a sincere heart and say, I'm going to hold on to this, but I want some of that new. I'm going to put it in there. It's not going to work because God is doing something new. He's saying, Pharisees, you can't take a little bit of what I say and put it into your traditions. It's incompatible. It will destroy it. You will destroy both because they are incompatible. 
Let me give you a little illustration of this. Um, as you know, that some of us went to a mission trip. Pastor Ben went, Kara back there went, Isaac went, <coughs> and a couple other folks too. And one of these days, we were worshiping in an Orthodox church. And we were not being loud. Uh, we were not being obnoxious. Uh, we were actually worshiping. Some people are actually on their knees praying, and they asked us to leave. Uh, and they asked us to leave because their traditions were stronger than their faith. Now, I'm not pointing pick, uh, fingers at that one particular congregation or that particular church or the person who kicked us out, because that spirit is very much alive and well in many of our hearts. Because if a person says, I believe in Reformed theology, and that's all they believe in, it's really the same spirit, right? It's a spirit of tradition. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that which is new, new wine, cannot be put into old wineskins because it will burst the wine and, I mean, burst the skin and ruin the wine. And then Jesus finishes off and rounds off this parable by saying, well, some people taste the old wine. <clears throat> they said, that's all I want. I don't want anything new. Now, what's the basic point? The basic point is you have to cut yourself away from that which is old to take in that which is new. The new things that God is doing may not fit our paradigms. Now, I say that guardedly, and I will parse that um, in, in a minute, but the basic point that Jesus is making in this passage to the Pharisees is you represent that which is old, and you cannot be a follower of me unless you get rid of that which is old, because the newness is incompatible with your traditions. So you don't want to bring um, any good deeds or healing on the Sunday, but Jesus says, I will. It's incompatible. Right? So the traditions of the Pharisees are incompatible with what God is doing now through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is where we need to parse things a little finely, because if you look at what Jesus is saying, and what I'm saying um, to you from a slightly different perspective, I'm not saying everything that is old is bad. What I'm saying is tradition divided from the things of God is bad. Because what Jesus will say here is rooted in that which is very ancient. And what Jesus does is rooted in prophecies that were given thousands of years prior, which means that they are very ancient Indeed, but what happens to those ancient truths and those ancient promises is that they're overlaid with the traditions of people, and the traditions of people may have started with good intention, but in the end, oftentimes, they put up a fence or they put up a bulwark, and they no longer become the things that represent God, but it represents the people instead, and that, my friends, is incompatible with the things of God and the new things that God is doing. And if we are wise, then we will also be a little self-reflective and to say, you know, we all belong to a tradition. No one here is traditionless. What are those traditional things that we might hold on to that's actually incompatible with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And if we find those things, we have to say, Lord, take away that which is old so that I can embrace that which is new. And as we embrace those things which are new, we will find out that those things which are new are actually rooted in ancient things. Because God is one who does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So what Jesus is saying is, I am here as a present reality, Pharisees and the people of the first century. I am doing something new, but that something new is rooted in the prophecies of that which is old. And therefore, what we see and what we can underline is the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. So what we see in the ministry of Jesus is this two-stage blessing. The first blessing is Jesus is here. Jesus is here, and he's dining with sinners. God intends to do that all along. It's very ancient. God is healing lepers and introducing them into the community of God so that they can be the covenant people of God, and he is bringing wholeness. That's in the heart of God right from the beginning. That's why there is a plan of salvation, and he's causing paralytics to walk and to leap and jump with joy that's rooted in the heart of God who is a healer for the people of God. And this is precisely why the first miracle that Jesus does, he transforms water into wine and saying it's the time of wine, it's the time of newness, it's the time of abundance. And just to show you that this is all rooted in that which is old, there's a beautiful biblical theology of wine in the Bible. Now, if you think about it, the patriarch, uh, Jacob, blesses his sons um, at the end of the book of Genesis. And it says in the book of Genesis that for, for Judah, that he will be able to, his descendants will be able to tether his donkey to the choices of vines. Why? Because you're going to be able to tether your donkey on a robust grapevine. That's how robust and thick the grapevine will be. And he ups the ante, and he says, you will be able to wash your clothing in the blood of grapes. Now, look at that imagery. You will be able to wash your clothing in the blood of grapes, and you'll be able to tether your donkey to a vine. Very ancient book of Genesis, the beginning, there's going to be a time where there is some serious wine. A time of wine is coming. God's going to be the one who does it. And consider the spies, all right? When uh, Moses sends the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, into the land of promise, um, what do they come back with? They come back with a cluster of grapes, but two men, two burly Men have to carry it. Why? Because it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is um, a land with some serious clusters of grapes. It is a land of abundance. It is a land of wine. And when you go to the Minor Prophets, and it's, to be honest, a little easy to forget the Minor Prophets because we focus on, like, Isaiah, yeah, maybe Jeremiah a little bit, but we forget about, like, uh, Amos and Hosea and all these other minor prophets. But if you look very closely at the minor prophets, there's an echo that the hills will drip with new wine. The hills will flow with wine. And so Jesus comes and turns water into wine. God is doing something new. 
And this is why the Apostle Paul takes that theology and says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the two-part is Jesus is here, he's preaching, he's healing, he's delivering. But that ministry that Jesus began will continue through the pouring out of his Spirit, which is the wine. And it is that wine of abundance that cannot be contained in tradition. God is doing something new through his spirit, and the irony, it is rooted in that which is ancient. So the only thing it cuts down and bypasses is the formal tradition of men and women that have distorted the things of God because God is not one who changes. So, church, we are living in the age of wine. And if we are indeed living in an age of wine, then we need new wineskins. All of us. We need to be people that say, Lord, give me new wineskin for this new wine. And when we do that, there is going to be an openness to the fact that God is God, and he does things that are not going to fit our paradigms perfectly because no one here has a perfect paradigm of the kingdom of God. And so God may surprise us, and God may do something that... Um, that may make us a little scared because he's going to call us to be courageous. Uh, this summer, um, I did a lot of driving. And I, didn't know, I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier. Um, I just thought of it this summer. Oh, why don't I, I, I download audiobooks? So I've been listening to a ton of audiobooks, but because I'm a dad of a 17-year-old and an 8-year-old, I curate my collection uh, to the taste of my children. So when I'm with my son, I want him to be an educated young man. So we've listened to Iliad Book One. Uh, and uh, he's read it, but I, I, I don't know how well he knows it. Um, so we, let's listen to that. We listened to uh, a history of Rome from beginning to end. He was like 16 hours. I made him listen to it. <laughs> we drove a long time. Uh, but my daughter is eight. So we listened to the Chronicles of Narnia. It was so good, the BBC production. We listened to all, uh, all the books. And uh, there's one, refra one refrain that takes place when it concerns Aslan. And uh, to be honest, I, I've not really read much of C.S. Lewis. Um, I was resistant because my tradition was Reformed theology, and Reformed people don't necessarily include C.S. Lewis in the canons of those who are truly Reformed, like T.R., uh, so I resisted until I was in my mid-40s. Uh, so I love C.S. Lewis now. And one of the refrains that takes place in Narnia is that Aslan is good, but he's not a tame lion. Uh, Jesus is good, but he's not tame. He's a warrior. He's a warrior king. And we see that in Scripture. So there's going to be times where he calls us out into battle, and he calls us out 
into the waters. And he calls us to confront, quote unquote, the Philistines. And he says, go, I will go before you. So we will have to go. There is newness, friends. It might not fit our paradigms, but we need new wineskins. And therefore, there has to be an openness to the things of God. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were so closed. They didn't want anything new to disturb the equilibrium that they had. They didn't want to be tossed this way or shifted that way. And so they perished. But what God is calling us to do is to have that openness to God, to know that he is not tame, but he's good, and he's loving, and he's sacrificial, and he's your father who cares for you more than you can ever imagine. So in my opinion, what do I think God is doing? What new things do I think God is doing? And I came up with three. It's not rooted in this text. It's based upon the opinions of one man. But this is what I've been seeing over the years. And I think these are some of the new things that God is doing. And I'm sure you, you have your own observations, which are fantastic also. But let me just give you three things, what I think God is doing here in New York City. I think we've come to a point where power is over polish. Power is over polish. And what I mean by that is, back in the day, if you wanted to have a successful church, just be a polished preacher, people will come. Uh, I think things are changing, and what God is calling his people to be and do is to have his power. Number two, in the past, giftings got you far. But I think because God's spirit is with us more and more, gifting will take us eh, this much. But consecration and character will take us that much. Character, more important than gifting. And the third thing that I see that God is doing is unity is more important than a one-person show. Back in the day, you can build things around one person. Now I see that God is bringing acceleration, but that acceleration will only take place when people and leaders in particular humble themselves, come together, seek the unity of the body of Christ, and in that unity, God will bring blessing. And in some ways, these are very new, but in other ways, they are very ancient. But sometimes they go against the traditions of men and women. So what's the upshot? What's the application? The application is very simple. Be open to God. Be open to God. He, he speaks. He communicates. He nudges. He pokes and prods. He calls. He gives dreams. Um, he gives inklings. He gives these feelings. He speaks powerfully through his word like a roar of a lion. And what are we supposed to do? Maybe say, ah, it's nothing. No, we take that step of faith because we have the word of God as our guard. God is not going to go against his word and we know his character to be one of goodness and justice and love. So there's going to be that consistency but if God is calling us to do something and we feel it in our hearts and he comes back again and again, we better do it. Because God is doing something new and what we need is new wineskins. 
And so, let me summarize one thousand-page book in 30 seconds. Gordon Fee wrote a book called God's Empowering Presence. It's about a thousand pages long, okay? There's a good book review. The book is so big, you can kill a cockroach on a shag rug, okay? <laughs> That's how big this book is, okay? And the only thing that you need to remember, right, if you're going to uh, summarize that book, although you, you should read the book, it's fantastic, to be honest, I only read about 250 pages, and I got the gist of it, so I can give this, okay? <laughs> God's Spirit is personal. That means all of you have a relationship with the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is powerful, which means we can be powerful people. Not timid people, powerful people. And God's Spirit is present. God's Spirit is with us. And so we sing, Spirit, break out. Come down. Empower me, empower us to do the work of God. New wine. New wineskins. Well, it's kind of beautiful. There's a new community here. But we have a very ancient father who loves us.